Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Monica Anna Day. And for maybe 60 seconds, it's awesome! (laughs) And that's as long as Calvin lasts. (laughs) Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is John Schofield behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Resetting. Three stories where the storytellers found themselves kind of reframing how they were feeling or thinking about a certain issue. Hey, if you're new to the podcast, you really should check out our Facebook group. It's called The Risk podcast fans discussion group. That's where people like to share how they're thinking or feeling about the latest stories that they heard on the show. And also become a patron of ours over at Patreon because there's so many bonus stories and check-ins, ask me anythings. Um, There's ad-free versions of the show over there. There's so much more to find of risk at patreon.com slash risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our favorites. Tracy Sagara is back on the show. But before that, the first appearance by the wonderful Monica Day. Now, Monica is a writer and a life coach. Her book, Play Wild, Stay Safe, is available everywhere. You can find her at monicaday.com. And here she is now. This was recorded when Risk was in Cincinnati, Ohio, a few months back. It's Monica Day with a story we call Open Season. So it's 2008, and I have a predicament. The stock market has crashed, and I'm a financial writer, and so I've pretty much lost all my clients. The real estate market has crashed. I'm holding three mortgages, and I can't cover them. And my marriage has pretty much crashed. We've been separated for going on two years, and it's pretty clear we're not getting back together. So I got two young kids. Now I'm a single mom. And uh, these situations are all pretty important, dire situations. And yet, that's not my predicament. 
my predicament is that I find myself a 40-something-year-old woman who now has the libido of a teenage boy. <laughs> and so while I know that my attention should be on all the mortgages and the bills and the kids, all my attention is on the fire down below. <laughs> so the good news is that I have a new boyfriend. And he's just my type. His name is Sam. He's on the short side. He's kind of stocky, balding, Jewish, and a mensch. <laughs> and we're having a lot of really good sex. <clears throat> Sam did a really smart thing after his divorce. He went into a really intense period of study of women. He decided to learn about women. And he studied really well. And it was working in my favor. <clears throat> So, on this day, I'm in the airport, I'm headed to California, I'm going to be gone for a week, and there's a um, delay, you know, so I'm stuck in the airport, so I'm on the phone with my boyfriend, right, and we're like doing that thing that you do, you know, when you're like in a new relationship, you're like talking about all the really good sex you're having, that was so good, wasn't that good? Oh, that was so good. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he says... Isn't it great to finally be having enough sex? And inside my head, these alarm bells start going off, right? It's like, and my heart starts racing, and it's like, but it's not enough. It's not enough sex. I mean, just, he thinks it's enough, like it's not. And then the sane part of me, the one who understands how to manage the fragile male ego, is like, you cannot tell him. You cannot speak of this. Now, none of that's happening out loud. What's happening out loud is just this really long, awkward silence. And I realize that I can't keep making the same mistake over and over if I want something to be different in my relationships. So I put on my big girl panties and I say, what makes you think it's enough? And there's more alarm bells. Abort! 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 <laughs> red alert! Red alert! <clears throat> and over the din in my head, I hear him say, Really? Tell me more. This is not the answer I'm expecting. I'm expecting defensiveness and hurt feelings and ego. And instead, I'm faced with genuine curiosity. So... At this point, I have to get to an even more private place in the airport, and I pull my jacket around me like I'm pulling like, the curtain in the confessional, right? <clears throat> I try to tell him more, and the truth is, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's not like you can hold all this stuff in your whole life, and then all of a sudden, it just comes out, right? I'm, I'm censoring myself. I'm editing myself. I, I try to tell him a couple dirty things, but then I get shy, and I try to tell him a couple, like, outrageous things. I mean, who doesn't want to fuck a football team, right? But... <clears throat> <laughs> and he hears me, and he hears my struggle, and he says, What is it, baby? And I just can't hold it back anymore. I said, I feel so much shame. 
And there it is, like with that admission, then I can tell him everything. Then I can tell him all the cultural taboos in my head, all of what it means to be a woman who wants sometimes more than a man, all of what I'm afraid of. And then, okay, yeah, I tell him some more dirty things. So after I just tell him everything, the loudspeaker goes off and it's time to get on the plane. And his last words of that conversation are, I want you to have it all. We had talked about having an open relationship. That was our intention. But it was really new. You know, we kind of only had eyes for each other. So we hadn't put that to the test. And I was excited about that idea, but it was scary, too. I didn't know how that was going to go. But there was something about that permission. I mean, don't get me wrong. The feminist in the back of my head is like, you don't need anybody's permission. You know, you do you. But sometimes, <laughs> ladies, I got to tell you, you got to tell the feminist in the back of your head to shut the fuck up. <laughs> so I walk on that plane in a really different place. And I'm ready to explore this new relationship landscape that I've been provided. So my seat is 12B. And I get on the plane, and it's a little smaller than I thought. It's got, like, uh, three seats on one side. Oh, it's kind of like this, actually. <laughs> Just like this. So it's got three seats on one side, and then it's got two seats on the other side. So my 12B ends up being an aisle seat, not a middle seat. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder who's going to be in 12A. You know, like, who am I going to sit next to for a little while? So I'm... <laughs> So in 12A is like the most beautiful man I have ever laid eyes on. Like, and when I say beautiful, I mean like billboard beautiful. Like if you've ever been to Times Square and they have these billboards and they're like five stories high and a building wide with these like beautiful people on it, he's like billboard beautiful. He's got that kind of like um, chiseled features and his hair is like brown and it's kind of perfectly tousled. I mean, he's not metrosexual hot, but he's not firefighter hot either. He's like somewhere right down the middle of the lane. <laughs> so I stop for just a second before I take my seat to compose myself and I look up and I just say, thank you. <laughs> like, I don't even know who I'm thanking, but this feels like divine intervention at this point. So I take my seat. And I start to make some small talk, and we find out that the flight is going to Atlanta, but we're both going to California. He's going to be going to L.A., I'm going to be going to San Francisco. So I say, oh, like, what brings you to L.A.? And he looks, like, a little embarrassed and, like, you know, a little shy, and he says, um, well, I'm, I'm going for a photo shoot. And I'm like, dude is a porn model? Like... <laughs> My imagination at this point is going a little wild. And I was like, oh, like, what kind of photo shoot? And then he looks even more embarrassed, and he says, well, like, I just signed with Calvin Klein, and it's an underwear shoot, and I'm really nervous. <laughs> yes, it's true. I am sitting next to a 25-year-old Calvin Klein underwear model. <laughs> And what started out as flirtation has now gone into full-on seduction. <laughs> it turns out that after my divorce, I started writing erotic poetry. I don't really know why, but oh, it seemed like a thing to do. <laughs> so in my bag, I've got like a little pile of erotic poetry, I kid you not. <clears throat> so, you know, like I 
casually take that out and I set it out and and then I'm like, oh god, like oh, it's hot in here, right? <laughs> and I've got this long sweater, you know, and so I I take that off because this could come in handy, right? You know, like a long sweater, you put it over the lap, like I'm just like doing some math here. <sighs> so I'm reading my erotic poetry. <laughs> And uh, he starts looking over my shoulder, you know, like, uh, and uh, he sees that I catch him looking over my shoulder. So, he, you know, he's like, oh, like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, is that private? Do you mind? And I said, no. I said, it's fine. And then I leaned over and I said, but it's much better if someone reads it to you. Would you like me to read it to you? Uh, um, uh, <clears throat> sure. <laughs> so I lean in and I start with something tame. Probably one of the first ones I'd written and I said, Ordinary as it looks when empty, my deep cushioned, wide bottomed, subtle flowered plump pillowed, full of curves yet strong couch, has changed since you draped yourself on it one Friday night. So he's like squirming at that point. And I put the sweater over our laps and a little exploration reveals that, let's call him Calvin, (coughs) is a fan of erotic poetry. So three more poems in. Calvin is clear that he wants to join the Mile High Club. (laughs) Now, I'm older and wiser, so I know a better place. So I lean over and I say, do you trust me? He will do anything right now. (laughs) Yes, I trust you. So we land at the Atlanta airport, where you remember we have a two-hour layover together. And being a mom... I make a beeline for the family restroom. (laughs) Because I know that's the only place in an airport where two people of different genders can casually walk in, lock the door, and get down with some (laughs) hanky-panky. So at this point, we are beyond hot and bothered. And thank God there's no line. Like, I don't have to, like, wait for a toddler who's like... (laughs) Gotta be. And we go right in, and the door locks, and it is game on. I mean, we have put in our foreplay time. And for maybe 60 seconds, it's awesome. And that's as long as Calvin lasts. (laughs) Which he finds very disappointing and embarrassing. But really, I'm not phased. Because what I know is if you're a 25-year-old Calvin Klein underwear model, you got another one in you in the next two hours. (laughs) So I'm like... Let's relax. Let's have a drink. I take him over to the bar. I buy him a drink. Okay, I'm kind of mothering him a little at this point. That's probably a little weird. And I pick up the phone, and I call my boyfriend. And I'm like, hey, baby, guess what? (laughs) And Calvin's a little shocked. He didn't expect this turn of events. And Sam's a little shocked, too, but I'm going to give him credit. He recovers quickly, and, uh, and he cheers me on, and Calvin recovers. And <laughs> yes, we return to the family restroom for our second time. And this time, it's not as much of a wild rush. It's slower, it's sweeter, 
And in the slowness, I notice there's a counter. It's, it's not a gross bathroom, by the way. I just feel like I should tell you that. It's not gross. It's actually in good shape. And it's got this counter, and there's a mirror above it. And so I can see myself, and I can see Calvin behind me. And I notice myself in the mirror, and my face looks different. And I remember this. There's this old Van Morrison song. Uh, I won't sing it to you. But he says, I'm just looking for the face you had before the world was made, your original face before time and space. And in that moment, I was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. That's my original face before the shame before the baggage, before the world had its way with me. This is who I was. And I never looked so beautiful. So this second time was more pleasurable for us both. Um, there was actually a little bit of a line when we left the bathroom that time, so that was a little awkward. But again, no shame that time, so much better. And we say goodbye, we go our separate ways. And that actually is kind of the beginning of a pretty eventful week, I gotta tell you. That wasn't my only experience that week. And I keep exploring, and I keep Sam in the loop, and I share everything, that's our agreement. And he just continues to meet me with love and support, and even turn on, like he's turned on when I'm turned on. And I, I find this shocking. So when it's time to go home, I have no reason to really think it's not going to go well, but I'm still terrified. It's like I have no experience of a world in which someone can behave the way I did and not ruin their life. So when I see him, I can't see my face this time, but I can feel it. And you know how you feel that terror in your face? It was like insecurity and looking for the disapproval and the downright fear that I had committed relationship suicide. And it's just almost impossible to believe that he still loves me. And yet, when he looks at my terrified face and he pulls me close and he says, you have never looked more beautiful. And against all odds, we are closer after that experience. We are, uh, I've never been so honest with someone, and there's, there's no pretense, there's no hiding. Our sex is even better. I mean, that was kind of shocking. In fact, everything about my really challenging life is better when I get home. Like, I can think straight, I can figure out the mortgages and the kids and all the crap that's sitting at home because I'm not carrying around like pounds and pounds of like this lifetime baggage of sexual shame. So I'm here to tell you tonight, in case you were trying to figure out how to ditch yours, that it is possible to do in a family restroom with a 25-year-old Calvin Klein <laughs> underwear model in the Atlanta airport or anywhere else of your choosing. Thank you. So are you excited? Yes. 
I mean, none of these people know what we're about to do. You're gonna have sex in the bathroom. in the bathroom <laughs> it, it happens here every day okay so I'm 56 years old older than most of you in this audience and in my 56 years of life I've had exactly three conversations with my now 86 year old mother about sex. First one takes place, I'm 12 years old, I've just gotten my first period, I go to my mother, what does this mean, what do I do? She hands me a sanitary napkin with one of those belts that we used to have to use, which were horrible, and then she says, Tracy, this means you can get pregnant. Wait till you're married. And that's it. She walks out of the room. That is my entire sex education. We do not talk about sex in my family. Now, somebody apparently has been having sex because I have four siblings, <laughs> but we do not talk about it. But this is the 70s, this is a sexual revolution, and I see it all around me, and so I know that when I get older, I wanna be part of this, so for the next few years, I learn everything I can about sex, which isn't easy back in the 70s, but I do my best. Now, the second conversation I have with my mother about sex takes place, I am now 17 years old, it is the summer after high school, and I have just started being sexually active with my high school boyfriend, my prom date, Matt. And we are so excited about having sex. We bought this huge box of condoms. We're having the time of our lives, right? <laughs> so we go out on a date one night, and I come back very late, and I go upstairs, and I'm so tired, it's late. You know, drinking age was 18, so we probably had a couple of drinks. And I just go to lay down on my bed because I just want to go to sleep. And I don't even turn on the light. And I feel like there's something like squishy and wet all over my bed. And I'm like, I don't know what that could be. So I turn on the light. And there on my bed, I see all of the condoms that we had bought have been sliced in half with a scissor and are thrown all over my bed. My mother apparently has found the box of condoms which I hid in my closet inside a bag, but she was apparently snooping around, and she did this. And all I can think of is, what the fuck, Mom? <laughs> like, like, what is the message you were trying to send me here? You know, except the message that I know she's definitely sending me is that she is not happy that I am having sex. And I know that the next morning when I wake up, we are having our second conversation about sex. Well, I wake up the next morning, and my mother says, 
call Matt, tell him to come over, we are having a talk. And I'm like, oh God, what every 17 year old wants, you know? So I call Matt up, he's a sweet guy, he's like, all right, I'll come over. And he comes over and when he gets in the house, my mother ushers us into the formal living room. Nobody ever sits in the formal living room. This is like just for show, so I know this is gonna be a really serious conversation and I have to act appropriately. So Matt and I are sitting on one couch, my mother's sitting on the other, and my father is like lurking somewhere in the hallway and I figure he's gonna be part of this conversation too, but no, no, he apparently is not allowed to be part of this conversation. My mother shoes him away and I'm like, okay. So we sit there and my mother very solemnly looks at us and she says, you know, sex is a very serious thing. It's something you only do when you have a commitment to somebody and you love each other. And Matt and I kind of like glance at each other and we know that we have to go into acting mode now because Matt and I are not in love, far from it. We are like the Bob Seger song, Night Moves. We are just trying to lose these awkward teenage blues in the back of his car and whatever bed we can find. We are not in love at all, but we know that we have to, you know, now that she said this, we have to act like we are. And we're like, oh no, we, we're very committed to each other. We really love each other. This is probably gonna last, we'll get married married, you know. And honestly, I don't know what my mother says after that. But all I know is that it's going in one ear and out the other because I am not taking advice from a deranged condom destroyer. <laughs> well, somehow the conversation ends and Matt and I continue to have sex, but he keeps the condoms at his house from now on. <laughs> The third and final conversation I have with my mother about sex takes place two years later. I'm 19 years old and I'm home from college for the first time. And I'm broke because what college student isn't broke, right? Well, it's the end of the summer, I'm about to go back to college so I know I'm gonna have to beg my mother for money to go back to school. And so I sit her down and I'm like, mom, I really, you know, can you give me some money to go back to school? And she says, Tracy, what happened to all the money that you were supposed to be saving from your summer job? And I try and quickly think of a lie. You know, should I lie and say that, you know, my wallet got stolen at a bar or I spent money on back to school clothes and books? But in a split second, I just decide to tell her the truth. And I say, I had an abortion. And I instantly want to take it back when I look at her face, which has drained of all of its color. And I don't exactly know why I told her, because obviously from my last two experiences, I know that we really don't talk to my mother about sex. But I think it's because I'm 19 years old and I feel like I want to assert myself. I'm an adult, I'm a woman, you know, I'm, I'm sexually active and she can't do anything about it. And yes, you know, I got pregnant but I went to Planned Parenthood and I, I took care of it like an adult. But when I look at my mother, I'm like, what have I done? And then she does something that I totally do not expect. I expect to be screamed at or I don't know what. She gets up and she walks over to the dining room and she opens up the china cabinet and she reaches inside and she takes this beautiful gold-rimmed glass crystal goblet that my father's parents had gotten them for their wedding and she smashes it on the ground. 
And then she reaches in and she takes another crystal goblet, gold-rimmed, and she smashes it on the ground. And she keeps doing that until there's just a sea of glass on the floor. And she is crying, and I am hysterically crying, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know why she's doing this. And then she pulls me into the other room, and she goes, you want to know why I smashed all those glasses? And I don't. I really don't. But I know I'm going to have to sit here and listen to this. And she says, after seven years and five babies, in the 1960s, I find out that I'm pregnant again. And I tell your father that there is no way I'm going to be able to care for a sixth child. And I tell him he needs to find somebody to end this pregnancy. And abortion was not legal back then, Tracy. It wasn't as easy for me to walk into Planned Parenthood like you did and just take care of it, like you were going to get your nails done. And she goes, and let me tell you about my experience. I walked up a rickety set of stairs and the room was dirty and the doctor was cruel. And when it was over, he told me, it's a boy. And I am just losing it. I cannot believe that she's telling me this for a parent who never told me about anything. She is now laying bare the worst moment of her life. And I'm horrified by what she went through. But 19-year-old me is also angry. Like, how dare she? How dare she turns a story about me into something about her? And then, and then, she tells me, you know why I had so many children? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to start hearing about her sex life. What 19-year-old? I'm like, I just want to put my fingers in my ears. I don't want to hear about her sex life. And she says, your father used to wake me up in the middle of the night because he wanted to have sex. And that's why there's so many of you. And I am so angry at her, and I'm so angry at her for blaming my father as if she had no choice in the matter. And he's just sitting there, and he's got his head bowed, and he's saying nothing. And I honestly don't know how that conversation ended, and somehow I went back to school, and after that, I never lived at home again. And I never developed over the years any kind of real close relationship with my mother, the kind of relationship that I think I wanted when I was a little girl and that maybe she wanted to. And it's been over 30 years since that experience, since that day, which is burned into my memory. But now that I'm older and I have teenage daughters of my own, I look back at that experience and I see it much differently. Because now I realize that my mother did not have the freedom. She did not have the choices I had in the 80s when abortions were legal and birth control was easy to come by and it was accepted to do what I did. When she made the decision to do what she did, it must have been one of the hardest decisions she ever made. But she made it. And then she went on and she went back to school and she got her master's degree. And by the time I was a toddler, she was a full-time teacher. And when my parents' marriage inevitably split up, my mother traveled the world instead of falling apart. 
So yeah, my mother was a deranged condom destroyer and glass smasher who had no capacity, no idea how to talk to her 12-year-old, her 17-year-old, her 19-year-old daughter about sex. But she's still the most badass feminist I know. And I'm proud to call my mom. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Adrian Lenker behind me now, and we just heard from Tracy Sagara. You can find Tracy at tracysagara.com, and she has a show called Now You're Talking on Long Island. The next one is on Saturday, June 15th at the Tillis Center, and the Father's Day theme is It's All Relative, uh, True Family Stories. Ophira Eisenberg will be there, so don't miss it. Before that, a little interstitial created by Risk fan Robert Fulham. If you don't know, we invite our fans to create audio interstitials for us. If you want to find out more about that, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Our final story today is one that was shared at the Risk Live show that we did in Madison, Wisconsin a few months back, and it was just unforgettable. This storyteller is a first-timer, had never told a story on stage before, and man, oh man, you would not know it. You can find Amanda Wood on Instagram at Rabid Cat Press or Rabid Cat Press. And here she is now. This is Amanda Wood with a story we call Near Death. Kristen was the best sister I could have possibly asked for because she always had my back but always knew when to call me on my bullshit. There was this one time that I walked in the house and she slowly turns to me and says, Poopsie, you smell like a ginormous doobie. And she knows a little stoner and could have ratted me out to the folks anytime and really could have cashed in on blackmailing me, but she never did. And I was so, so grateful for that. But there was this one time that I took her car without asking and I drove it an hour to another city 
And I thought she was going to beat the shit out of me when she found out because I've never seen her so mad in my entire life. But no matter what reaction I got out of her, I always knew it was out of love. I'm the baby of the bunch, Kristen's the middle child, and my brother Jason is the oldest. For some reason, Sundays always stick out to me in my memory because that was our guaranteed family day. We always had such different schedules, and my parents are small business owners, and so Sunday was the day we always had together, and that usually meant going to church. And that usually meant getting hustled in the Ford Econoline van and its many shades of brown, eating cereal in the back seat and listening to the oldies as we hustled to church, and nine times out of ten were late and sat in the back pew. And of everyone in the family, Kristen was always the one I looked up to because she was everything I wanted to be. She had this curly hair, hazel eyes, a perfectly placed mole on her cheek, and was just so talented at everything, especially music, above all things. I swear, she could pick up any instrument and play at ease, but piano was her forte. And I always remember her playing in the evenings, practicing classical music, and it just being a really nice, peaceful way to end our time together. Even though we were at each other's throats most times, there were the good times too, like singing along to Ace of Bass and our hairbrush microphones. And we got so much closer over the years, especially when we got into college. We ended up getting matching tattoos and had all these elaborate inside jokes about 30 Rock and Barry Manilow. I was just so excited for our futures because I was going into art, she was gonna be a music teacher, and it just seemed so perfect. Everything was going the way it was supposed to until one day she gets sick and she has flu-like symptoms that turn into stroke-like symptoms and then she has blood clots and she's in a coma and it's just all happening so fast i'm in another city it's right before finals it's before christmas and she's 24 years old what could possibly be wrong and then all of a sudden it's december 14th 2009 and i'm stuck in this cold fluorescent cage with my family, waiting for a doctor to give us results. And suddenly he appears from the shadows and pulls us in one of those little side rooms where they give you the bad news. And you know it's a side room where they give you the bad news because it's just a little bit nicer than the rest. The cushions are nicer. There are inspirational quotes on the wall. And then you see brochures for organ donation and grieving a loved one. And that's where we get the bad news. Date vein thrombosis has taken my sister and put blood clots in her brain, heart, and lungs. It was a complete freak accident, and there's nothing that we could have done or that the doctors could have done. We just had to let her go. And in that moment, I hoped, above all hope, that she heard me tell her that I loved her one last time before the blood stopped flowing to her brain, and that she heard my brother play the Beatles for her one last time, because that was her favorite band. And so it just seemed too fitting to play that at her funeral because she was so full of life and we want, didn't want it to be as somber, I guess. And to this day, the song Golden Slumbers off of Abbey Road still makes me cry like a little baby. <laughs> but it didn't really hit that she was gone until that first time that we went out to dinner, which was at Golden Corral, of all places. And we walk in and the hostess is super bubbly and says, hi there, how many? And my dad says, five, please. I mean, four. Four, please. And it's the longest dinner I've ever sat through in my entire life. I remember staring at this clear pebble-textured water glass on my table and just watching the ice cubes melt and become the water inside that glass. 
and I'm thinking about those inside jokes, listening to the song Speaking in Tongues by Eagles of Death Metal in her car, singing Ace of Bass into our hairbrush microphones, and wondering how I'm going to live the rest of my life without her. <sighs> and then my grades start to slip, and I think about taking the semester off. But I know I have to stay in, because if I leave, I won't come back. And then finally, this moment of hope appears in my printmaking class, where we have this prompt. We have to listen to a piece of music, and then make a piece based on that. And my professor starts playing this classical music, and I immediately think of Kristen, because that's what she was always playing when she was practicing. And so it just felt right to make it about her. And I just had this breakthrough where I made this piece that was so personal and dear to me that no one could take away from me. And from that point on, I just felt like everything I wanted to make had to be personal and be this visual catharsis because it was something special and personal and mine. And so when the day came for graduation, I was so ready to be done and get out of there, but I was disappointed that Kristen couldn't be there to celebrate with me because I felt like she was this catalyst that started it all. And I didn't want to celebrate. I didn't even want to walk across the stage. My family convinced me to and said we could go out for Mexican food and margaritas afterwards. I was like, okay, great, sounds good, let's do it. But then my friend Anna was like, you know what, let's go out for some drinks. Like, let's celebrate, come on. And I was like, okay, fine, yeah, let's do it. I mean, I graduated college, that's a fucking milestone, let's do it. And so we go downtown to our favorite watering hole, and I'm having such a great time. It just feels like this perfect ending to the best and worst years of my life. And soon bar time comes around, and then we meander to a fellow art student's house party. And the last thing I remember is taking a pull from a bottle of booze. And then I wake up in the hospital. And I'm so confused, and my eyes hurt so bad, it's as if I'm using them for the first time. And it's blurry to the point where it's almost like I'm looking through a sheet of wax paper. And my head hurts so bad and feels so swollen. And the nurse puts something in my eyebrow that stings so deep, it feels like it's pulsing into my brain. And I'm so cold and wrapped in this plastic heated blanket that just feels so uncomfortable and alien-like. And then I see my aunt at the foot of the bed, and she has tears in her eyes, her cheeks are red a little bit moist from crying. And I see the same look on my parents' face by the door, but with just a little bit more look of relief in theirs. And as I'm coming to, it dawns on me that I'm in the hospital on December 14th, five years to the day that my sister died. And I've never felt like a bigger piece of shit in my entire life, or so guilty. And then I ask what happened, and they tell me that I slipped hit my head, someone found me, called an ambulance, and then I'm okay. Just need to rest, and then we'll talk about things later. And then I find out that it was about 30 degrees when they found me and brought me in. My blood alcohol content level was 0.27, which, to put in perspective, the legal limit is 0.08. And I had a half-inch laceration in my eyebrow, concussion, alcohol poisoning, and I was extremely lucky to be alive. And after I was discharged from the hospital, I got sent home in these oversized scrubs and this white and black Afghan blanket because all my clothes were soaked. And I just felt so helpless and infant-like, but so thankful that my parents were there to take care of me 
and so thankful I lived by myself so I had this quiet refuge to heal in. And my instinct upon getting home is to just curl up into a ball like a little armadillo in my bed. But then I start to get really mad because I'm thinking about my friend Anna, the one who was supposed to drive me home. And I text her and I'm like, hey, I just woke up in the hospital. Where were you? What the fuck happened? And she calls me in a sobbing and says, I'm so sorry. I don't know. I got really drunk. And then I woke up to my boyfriend yelling at me. He said he could smell the booze on me from the other room. I drove home. I don't know what happened, but I'm so glad you're okay. And I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anymore because I've never been more disappointed than anyone in my entire life. And I just lay there trying to rest. And then I get another message on my phone. But from someone named Karen Butt, B-U-T-T, and the 12-year-old in me rejoices because I've never needed to laugh more in my goddamn life. And I open it, because I'm curious. I think it's spam, initially. And then I read it, and it says, Amanda, you don't know me, but I'm the woman that found you Sunday morning. You were unconscious and unresponsive, and I cradled you until the ambulance came and tried so hard to get you to come, too. I really hope you're okay, and here's my number if you want to talk. And so, of course, I wanted to talk because, one, I wanted to thank her for saving my fucking life, and two, I wanted answers because all I knew is that I slipped and fell. I didn't know how long I had been unconscious, anything. And so I called her, and she gave me the details that she and her husband were driving downtown to their business around 6 in the morning, saw something on the sidewalk, which initially looked like a garbage bag, but they kept driving, and Karen got this feeling that she should turn around and go back. And so they come back, and as they approach what they thought was a garbage bag, it turns out to be me, and they think I'm dead. Because I'm laying on my back with my eyes open and blood all down the left side of my face, and I'm unresponsive, not even shouting, pinching, not even the raindrops falling on my eyes make me blink. And so they pick me up, cover me in blankets, and just try and try and keep talking to me and talking to me until the ambulance comes and I finally mumble something. And she just is like, come on, sweetie, you got to keep talking. Come on, what's your name, baby? And finally, Amanda. Amanda. What what about the last last name? Okay, W. Okay, Amanda W. That's something to work with. And so she goes on Facebook and finds that we have mutual friends get them in touch with my parents and so the authorities can contact them. And I just start sobbing and thank her. And I tell her it's really eerie because my sister died on the same day. And she gets really quiet and says, you know, it's really funny that you mention that because I felt like I had this voice in the back of my head telling me to turn around. And I think you're right. I think she really was watching over you. And so, as you can imagine, a number of things have changed since then. For three months after that accident, I had post-concussive symptoms of sensitivity to light and sound, headaches, nausea, everything but the kitchen sink. And I just felt so scared because I knew there would be symptoms and I'd be feeling not like myself, but it was starting to be kind of scary. And I was really worried that I was going to get blood clots in my brain and die like Kristen, too. And so I requested an MRI, and it was normal. 
but I felt lost again because I didn't have any answers. I knew that it was kind of normal to be feeling off, but we all have this inherent sense of self, and we know what behaviors and thoughts and actions to kind of expect from ourselves. And so when these things start happening out of character and out of your control that even frighten you, that's when it's a cause for concern. And there are still times when I look deep in the mirror into my eyes and see the sense of vacancy and wonder if I'm going to feel like myself ever again. And I still have problems remembering faces and names, retaining information. I sometimes have to pause a little bit because I'm just I'm processing. I just have to slow down a little bit and be patient with myself and others. I'm not the same, and it's okay. I'm just trying to work around it and move on with my life. I lost my faith a long time ago, and my experience certainly didn't do anything to bring it back. I don't believe in God, but I believe in my sister, and I know what I feel, and I truly feel she's still with me in some way. There's this moment shortly after my accident that my parents gave me her old stereo, which is really nice because I was always so jealous of it. And for some reason, the CD player had stopped working, and I was like, oh, it's okay, like, I can use it as a, as a receiver for my turntable. And all of a sudden, one day, I'm about to listen to a record, and I turn it on, and the CD player starts working. And it plays Speaking in Tongues by Eagles of Death Metal, one of our favorite songs. And all the hairs stand up on my arms, and I just can't stop smiling because I feel like it's her popping in to say hello. Three years ago, I was driving her car and got into a wreck here in Madison and totaled it, and I felt like she was there too. And twice a year, I have this ritual that I've created where I always get a slice of cheesecake and do something music-related, both on her birthday and the day that she died and the day I almost died. The birthday is solely about her and about her life, but the 14th is about her and us and the things that we loved. And it's a me-time activity because my family is a bunch of stubborn Scandinavian Midwesterns who don't like to talk about their feelings. And so in a surprising yet beautiful turn of events, just like two weeks ago, my dad opened up to me about something for the first time in nine years that he's never told anyone. And that was that shortly after Kristen passed, he was in church, was singing in the choir, and was sitting in a pew, and saw her sit down in front of him. And I just got so happy. One, that he was finally felt comfortable to share it with someone after nine years. And just so happy that he had that beautiful moment with her. And I've taken the courage to dig up my own, go down my own emotional rabbit hole, if you will, and finally, after four years, contacted my friend Anna and said all the things that I've needed to say to her and received the most beautiful apology I've ever gotten from a human being and found out that she's in counseling and is really trying to get better. And so as much as I was reluctant to do this and go through the storytelling process, it's been nothing but good and has been so cathartic and wonderful. And I recently got this Grim Reaper tattoo that is a little Grim Reaper smoking a cigarette and it says, not here for you, have fun today. And it's my dark-humored way of saying that I'm not done yet, but I'm surrendering to the fact that it's just out of my control. Thank you.
is all for this week's episode folks this is amber run behind me now and we just heard from amanda wood who you can find on instagram at rabid cat press don't forget you can always find new information about where the next risk live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour if you feel like you need a little education around storytelling, well, we do that as well at our school at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do video courses that you can download and take in your own time. We do in-person workshops in New York, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles. And we do corporate workshops. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Really? Tell me more. And yet, when he looks at my terrified face, and he pulls me close, and he says, You have never looked more beautiful. That it is possible to do in a family restroom with a 25-year-old Calvin Klein underwear model in the Atlanta airport or anywhere else of your choosing. Hmm. 